You are now listening to the March 5th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Nearer to My God to Thee, the sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Nearer My God to Thee. Terry from the program Near My God to Thee. We commonly think that repentance is thinking what we did wrong or regretting our sins. We may say, I am sorry for my sin. Thinking and saying, I did wrong, I have sinned, I regret my action, may be the beginning of repentance, but it's not the completion of repentance. True repentance doesn't stop at thinking that we have done wrong but the thought appears as action and includes turning around and moving towards a life of honoring God. Among Jesus' parables, the parable of the prodigal son is a great example of what true repentance is. The prodigal son asked his father for an inheritance. He took the inheritance to a foreign country and lived in indulgence and squandered his money. Eventually, he lost everything and lived by tending pigs. The prodigal son was under a very pathetic circumstance where he couldn't eat and lived insufficiently. The prodigal son realized his wrong and that he sinned against heaven and his father. He didn't just stop at realizing his sin, but he left that place and returned to a right relationship with his father. That is the completion of repentance. It is returning to Father God. Among the hymns we sing, there is a hymn that people who have experienced being a prodigal son like to sing. Let's first listen to the hymn.
Here is the first verse. I've wandered far away from God. Now I'm coming home. The path of sin too long I've trod. Lord, I'm coming home. The people who have experienced being a prodigal son enjoy singing this hymn called, I've wandered far away from God. When we listen to this hymn, we can imagine the prodigal son from the book of Luke making this confession as he's on the road of returning to his father. This hymn called, I've Wandered Far Away From God, was written and composed by William Kirkpatrick, who greatly contributed to the development of hymns in the late 19th century in America. What kind of situation was William in to compose a hymn with such a confession? We'll find out through a drama. William Kirkpatrick was a music director who wrote and composed hundreds of hymns, and he faithfully worked for God's kingdom. In 1892, there was an outdoor revival event in Collinsville, Pennsylvania, and he led praise as the music director. The organizer of the event paid a lot of money to invite a young baritone vocalist to sing the praise. The voice of the young man was very beautiful. The people who attended the event every night repented in tears and praised God, along with the song sung by the young man. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. As William heard the young man's praise, he couldn't suppress his awe. The young man was exceptional in expressing feeling and emotion with his beautiful voice and lyrics. William felt like the young man was a great singer with tremendous ability. William was lost in admiration of the young man who was praising God. However, William's feeling of awe didn't last long. It's because, after the young man ended praise, he didn't listen to the sermon and left the worship room without any hesitation. After seeing the young man leave, William was worried that something urgent might have happened. However, during the first night, then the second night, and each night thereafter, the young man immediately left the event after his praise session ended. Hmm... Why does he immediately leave the event after he ends praise? Does he not know the Lord? Oh Lord, if my thought is correct, I desire for this young man to know the joy of your salvation. I desire for this young man to praise you as he experiences your grace instead of just singing. Lord, please grant this young man the grace of salvation. Please have compassion on him. During the event, William was praying for this young man, and in his soul, he thought of a scripture and lyrics to a hymn. William immediately began writing the lyrics and added a melody on that same day and finished composing the hymn. The next day, William gave the completed hymn to the young man. Brother, through your great voice and song, God is inviting countless people to enter into the grace of salvation. Yes, it seems you are correct. Thank you. However, I believe there's another person who needs to enter into that grace of salvation. And it's you. Ah, yes, you're talking about me. To tell you the truth, I don't have assurance. In fact, I composed this hymn while I was thinking of you. Huh? For me? Ah. Can you sing this hymn tonight? Yes, I will try. <clears throat> 
Coming home, coming home, nevermore to roam. Open wide thine arms of love, Lord. I'm coming home. The young man who sang "I've wandered far away from God" that night no longer looked like the young man who just sang for the money. He was a prodigal son who realized that the prodigal son in the lyrics was him. His soul received salvation, and he was returning to the arms of the grace of Father God. The young man couldn't finish singing the hymn that day. He bowed his head, and endless tears flowed. All the people who saw him also bowed their heads and cried together. The young man who repeated the lyrics, "Open wide thine arms of love, Lord, I'm coming home," accepted Jesus Christ as his savior that night, and God gave him the authority to become a child of God. He had realized the joy of salvation. Here is Luke chapter fifteen, verses twenty-one to twenty-four. The son said to him, "Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son." But the father said to his servants, "Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again." He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. I pray we could enjoy the joy of salvation and live in the arms of Father God. We'll end near my God to Thee. I'll see you next week.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Gospel Unity Propels Mission. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. Now here's our big idea. It's this. Gospel Unity Propels Mission. Gospel unity propels mission. I think this is what Paul is trying to accomplish in this letter, and we see some of this in this introduction. So first, notice... Paul's a messenger of the gospel of God. We see this in verse 1. Now, at first blush, as you read verse 1, you might be thinking to yourself that this looks pretty sparse. But if you were to compare this to the other introductions of Paul, you'll find that he actually says a lot more about himself than he does in his other letters. He says that he is a servant of Jesus Christ, That's one. He's called to be an apostle. That's another. And then he's set apart for the gospel of God. See, I think this three-phase description as a servant, messenger, and one who is gospel-bound emphasizes what one commentator calls a prophetic consciousness. Paul understands himself to be coming with a kind of prophetic force. This isn't the normal kind of letter that you might receive from someone. This is a kind of letter that carries more authority than a merely human letter. Uh, Notice that first he says that he is a servant, the the same word for slave of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. It's a title, I believe, that demonstrates both humiliation and exaltation. So he does not see freedom in Christ as freedom from Christ. Paul understands that his will, his actions are submissive to Jesus Christ as his king. He is not acting on his own free will. He is not self-actualizing. He is actually doing the work of his master Jesus. There's a humility to this. Yet this description also places Paul in line with the other great Old Testament prophets. You'll remember the great servants of the Lord, like Moses, who's called that in Joshua 14.7, and David and others. See, the description of Paul here is actually exalting him into one of the great, the role of one of the great servants of the Lord in the past. But notice he's also a messenger. This is just adding to that picture, showing him as one who is called to be an apostle. Now, great servants of God, 
experienced a direct call. Men like Abraham in Genesis 12 or Moses in Exodus 3. The prophets. And later you'll remember that the 12 disciples were called personally by Jesus to come and follow Him. But here Jesus called Paul as an apostle. It's a word that means messenger. In general, it's just someone who takes a message, someone who serves as an envoy. But as you look in BDAG, a Greek dictionary, they say this of the New Testament and its use of this word. It says it's mostly used to describe extraordinary believers. Believers with a special function is, is God's envoy. They're carrying God's message. So Paul and the 12 apostles or 12 disciples, they were headlined as the group of apostles. These are the ones whom Paul would later say in Ephesians 2.20 were the household of God. And he says of it, it is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. These men speak with a unique kind of authority. This is not a kind of messenger that speaks with the kind of authority that Amazon comes with, right? Or your postal worker. This is a man who comes with the very mail of God. Paul was also set apart for the message of the gospel. See, Paul looks much like the prophet Jeremiah, of whom God says in Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So you hear Paul is set apart for the gospel of God. And the gospel of God is, is a word that, that means good news. It is the good news of God or from God. In fact, the word behind it, euangelion, is a, a word that carries the idea, again, of a messenger who would run ahead to announce a military victory as people were waiting to hear word about how their people had done at war. See, the Old Testament prophet spoke of the gospel as well. And Isaiah, Isaiah in his day, spoke of a day that was coming when God's people would receive good news or gospel. In Isaiah 52, 7, where we read, How beautiful are the feet, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now catch this, like prophets of old, Paul is announcing that he has been called, he has been set apart to declare the gospel of God. That is good news from God. He is speaking as a man with divine authority, and this is not just any letter. In it, we do not just find suggestions or speculations, but true knowledge that you can base your very life on straight from the voice of your Creator. Now, if you're new to Christianity, and Romans intimidates you, don't miss this. Romans is actually unpacking the Gospel of God. It's giving you a vision of what the good news is that the people of God are so excited about that which they have given their lives to. See, Romans is unpacking this for us. It is the gospel of God. This is not the gospel of man. 
In fact, you should often think that as you are listening to it, that the gospel according to God is different than all of those gospels of man that I hear, that I hear on talk shows and from psychologists and on the radio as I'm driving to work. This is a different kind of news. It's rooted in a different kind of authority. See, Paul says he is really just an employee of the heavenly postal service, a servant of God. And that message centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, this is the one of whom Peter declared in Acts 4.12, there is no name under heaven given among men by which, by which we must be saved than this one, Jesus Christ. And let me ask you this morning, have you put your faith in that Christ? Do you know the gospel according to God? Have you received the most important mail that every human must receive? Have you believed it? Have you given your life to it? Well, this is a great place to be over the next coming months as we go through this very letter. Catch what the famed leader of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, had to say about this very book. He says this, this epistle really is the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day. It's the daily bread of the soul. For the more we deal with it, the more precious it becomes and the better that it tastes. And so I hope that's what happens to us as we are going through Romans. I hope that the more that we understand it, the better that it tastes. So do you want to grow in gospel fluency? Let's read this book. Study it. Hear what Paul has to say. But second, notice the gospel of God centers on the person of Jesus Christ in verses 2 to 4. As I said before, it's likely that much of the Roman church didn't know Paul. Some likely did, not many. So it makes sense that as Paul's speaking to them, that he would begin by showing that his gospel, his understanding of the gospel of God, is rooted in the soil of the Old Testament. We see that in verse 2, as well as affirming two quick foundational statements about Jesus, that content of the gospel and verses 3 to 4, he's talking about where his message comes from. So notice first in verse 2 that he says that God promised good news in the Old Testament. God promised good news in the Old Testament. He says this, this is the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And we just saw how the prophet Isaiah promised good news in Isaiah 52.7. But Paul's not merely specifying major and minor prophets when he speaks of the prophets. See, Paul understands the whole Old Testament scriptures to carry a kind of prophetic nature. In fact, this church in Rome seems to have grown out of the Jewish synagogue and even many of the early Gentiles appear to be God-fearers who had converted to Judaism before hearing of Christ. But Paul understood the importance as he's speaking to them of establishing that the gospel of God has roots in the Holy Scriptures or the graphe, the writings This is a technical term for the authoritative writings of the Old Testament. The the words which they believed to be the very words of God. And Paul says the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. We need to be aware of teachers that fail to treat the Old Testament as God's words. Or understand the Old Testament as to not be necessary or important for New Testament Christians. Because Paul says... The Old Testament is absolutely critical to understanding the good news. In fact, it was just a century later 
in the history of the Roman Empire that there came a heretic along by the name of Marcion. And he came teaching that the God of the Old Testament with Mount Sinai and all of the thunder and lightning and fear and and all of the law and judgment, he didn't like that God. And so he got to the New Testament and he started reading about Jesus and the compassion and the the love. I think he kind of spot quoted some stuff. But he, he started to really love the Jesus of the, Old, of the New Testament and said, you know what, I think that what we need to do is get rid of the Old Testament and believe in the God of the New Testament because they're two different gods. He preferred the Jesus of the New Testament full of love, mercy, and compassion. Does that sound familiar to you? With some of the ways that maybe even some of your friends or colleagues or others look at the Word of God? You know, they're, they're like sort of spot check. Like, I like Jesus and love. I don't like, like law and obedience. And so they take the Jesus in love, but they get rid of the rest. And he made a a better Bible, according to his perspective, without the Old Testament. Now for the next century, great Christian thinkers like Polycarp, Tertullian, and others actually wrote again and again reminding everyone that that kind of view of God is heresy. It's not just an old problem, though. It's one that keeps resurfacing. In fact, it was just in 2018 that Andy Stanley, who's pastor of one of the largest churches in America, maybe the world, actually made a statement when he was teaching from Acts 15 that he believed that what the Christians were doing was unhitching themselves from the Old Testament. Now, he later backtracked because we understood that, like, that's not historically Christian. But don't miss this. Paul says the gospel of God is much more like an RV than a trailer. Now, this is an imperfect illustration. So don't like drive this too far down the road. But the gospel is not a message that like, you know, the the New Testament's the truck and it's pulling the Old Testament on a hitch and you can unhitch it or like rehitch it or whatever. And you can, you don't need it. You can just drive the truck by itself if you want. No, it's more like an RV, right? That has an engine that like propels and carries itself. And the Old Testament, New Testament go together. They're not meant to be apart. You don't really understand the front part without the back part. Now, again, it breaks down, but you get it. We don't unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. That's not the way that historic Christians have done it. But notice in verse 3, not only that, Paul says the gospel of God centers on Jesus in verses 3 to 4. See, Paul explains the gospel as concerning God's Son. God promised a son to David, who would also be God's son back in 2 Samuel 7, that Old Testament covenantal promise that we look forward to. But also, you'll remember in Psalm 2-7. Psalm 2-7, we have a, a coronation psalm, which is speaking of God's king being recognized and anointed. And it's there that, that God said of his king, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You'll also remember that both Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3.17 and His transfiguration in Matthew 17.5 come with God the Father Himself speaking from heaven, declaring, This is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So the Gospel of God concerns God's Son. Now many scholars believe Paul quotes a commonly held confession or hymn of the early church to confirm that God's gospel is Paul's gospel. That verses 3 and 4 are really quoting a, a kind of confession that was already being used by the church. And it had really two statements about Jesus. Uh, the first we find in verse 3 
it says there that this son descended from David according to the flesh. Jesus was their expected Messiah, the one who was the Son of God, the one who comes from the literal physical line of David, just like Jesus did. But second, and this one's a little tougher to unpack, verse 4 says that he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now this is the only time that, that Paul uses this Greek word for declared. It's used elsewhere, but I believe it's better translated appointed. And some take spirit of holiness here to speak of Jesus' spirit of obedience through his life. So you, you see that phrase, spirit of holiness. And that, they say that's basically the kind of spirit of obedience that, that Jesus practiced throughout his life. I actually think that it's more likely that this, this phrase means Holy Spirit. I'm not going to fight you about it, but I think it's speaking of the Holy Spirit. Thus, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, I believe what Paul is saying is that it punctuated his accomplishment of redemption through his life, his death, and, and thus opened up a new day of salvation through redemption and the redemption that it accomplished. So there's a kind of movement that is happening that centers on Jesus raised from the dead. A new day has dawned. Today is a new day. It is a new day where the nations are being drawn in to Jesus Christ. Where a new covenant has arrived with God's new King. But how does verse 4 relate to verse 3? Because you'll notice the first one speaks of flesh and the second of spirit. And there seems to be some interchange between the two. I find Doug Moo to be exceptionally clear here. He, he writes of this verse and the way these verses relate to one another. And he says this. The flesh-spirit contrast in Paul is fundamental to his theology, and it will continue to be so in Romans. What is key to this text is that the contrast is usually a salvation historical one in Paul. Flesh is representing that old era that is passing away. The, the spirit denotes that new era that's inaugurated by Christ's work of redemption and marked by a new, powerful work of God's spirit. See, we live in light of the resurrection of Christ Jesus, our spirit-anointed King, who has ushered in a, a new and better covenant made up of men and women, boys and girls who have put their faith in Christ and received that same spirit. Now catch this. Paul and the Roman church don't hold to my truth. They hold to the truth. I think it's just important to take note of what Paul's doing here. In the culture that we live in, it is becoming increasingly popular for people to talk about my truth as though my truth is determined subjectively. It's not tied to anything outside of myself. I create and come to understand truth for myself. I brand my truth. And the only rule in, in this kind of philosophy is that you don't tell me that my truth is wrong. Your truth can be right, even if it's different than mine, and I don't agree with it, and your truth can be right. But all of us have like a, a my truth, and it's equally true to all of us. That's the culture that we live in. In fact, authors like Deepak Chopra and Oprah Winfrey tell us the purpose of life is actually to live out of my truth. 
That's a a purpose of life. That's a kind of gospel that culture is peddling to us. You want to know what a happy life looks like? You know what the good news is? You can be whatever you want to be, and it doesn't matter what God says. You don't have to listen to God. There's nothing outside telling you what must be true. See, by this, others see truth as subjective, and no truth is more truth than another truth. But here's the problem. We are so inconsistent in our culture, if you just think about that worldview. I mean, if you think about it, there are all kinds of ways that we see how this worldview doesn't quite make sense. So if I self-identify as a pink fairy armadillo, I still have to pay taxes. And not all truths are equal. Like at least today, hurting puppies is mostly uncool. But it also translates to views of God. Muhammad and Joseph Smith propose different belief systems as those who have received what they would claim are authoritative truths from God. So who is it to say that one is more or less true? Paul, speaking of himself and these Roman Christians, says our truth is the truth by which all other truths must be judged, edited, and submitted. Why? Because Paul delivers the mail of the God-man who died and rose again. If Jesus is alive, if he was truly dead for three days and then lived to tell about it, and we have a host of 500 witnesses in 1 Corinthians 15 that point to the veracity and the truthfulness of the fact that he was raised from the dead, then that means that whatever he has to say means something more than what I have to say. See, death often pictured in the ancient Near East, it was pictured by an actual God idol that was like a mouth, mut. And it was like that because you can imagine like as you would die, it was like death swallowed you up and he swallowed everybody up. In fact, there was nobody that didn't get swallowed up. Even Jesus was swallowed up. But here's the difference. Jesus walked back out. And Jesus swallowed up death for you and for me who are for in Christ. That's the good news. And Jesus' resurrection means that the prophets and apostles are transcendent truth from humans working with fallen minds in a confusing world. We really can know what's true because God has told us. Let me ask you this, this morning. Maybe you think of yourself as a believer, but you're looking at your life and you're thinking like, is there any fruit? And maybe you need somebody to meet with one-to-one to help encourage you that there truly is fruit. But maybe you think that that faith means that you can come, you can sit, you can listen to God's word, and you can walk away unchanged and never make any change in your lives. Paul would say, along with Martin Luther, that if that's your view of faith, there's something amiss with your faith. Faith, true faith, that's connected to Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead. The Son who gave us His Spirit and raised us to newness of life. It will change us. It will not leave us the same as what we were. And obedience apart from faith does not please God, but faith without works is not true faith. And Paul seeks faith here among the ethnos, the nations. The word used in the Old Testament for non-Jews. People outside of the covenant of God. Now think about this. This is, I think, an important point. Just as you're thinking about the nature of what Paul's very life says about the Gospel. This is a man... Paul, who was a zealous Jew. 
He says, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I have received the finest Jewish education. I was the Jew of Jews, the one that you would look to and be jealous of. And it was Jesus who interrupted his journey to Damascus to persecute Christians out of a zeal for the Lord when Jesus stopped him in his tracks in Acts 9.15. And it's there that we find that Jesus gives his purpose for pulling this man who is a persecutor of the church and a hater of God's people. He chose him out And we find in Acts 9.15 that God says, this is my purpose for him. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry Jesus' name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. As he is saved and swooped up, he's immediately called to go and take the gospel to the nations. See, Jesus turned a persecutor of the church into a preacher and a church planner. If that doesn't give you hope for wherever you are today, I don't know what will. Jesus took a persecutor of the church who beat, imprisoned, and killed Christians, Jesus' people, and turned him into a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. You would have thought like he would have been a great representative for the, the rulers of Israel and Israelites. But Jesus said, no. I don't care about your training. I'm sending you to the nations, the people far from you. In fact, in Acts, Galatians, and 1 Corinthians, we know that Paul has not forgotten his origin story. He again and again, as he tells his testimony to others, he says, do not forget who I am. 1 Corinthians 15.9 I am both the least of the apostles and unworthy to be called an apostle because I was a persecutor of the church. See, Paul sacrificed his name amongst the Jews along with his career, his family, his friends to follow Jesus' call to the nations. It was not a comfortable call. This was a painful, costly call. Let me just ask you this. What would cause a man like Paul to sacrifice his good Jewish life to go and tell the nations about Jesus? What would it take? What would it take to cause Jesus' brother James, who denied him every day of his life up until his death, to after his death and resurrection to become a leader of the church? What would cause Peter, who is a man who was cowardly as Jesus went to the cross, running and hiding, running from a little girl, to all of a sudden in Acts 2, preaching boldly that Jesus is the son of David that we've been waiting for? These are the facts that have led many to believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ truly happened. A number of my own mentors said one of the things that I just couldn't let go of is this stark reality that there are these people that before Jesus died did not believe him. And Paul, after he died, was a persecutor of the church. And something happened that caused them to change everything. But notice in verse 6, that he includes the Roman Christians in this context too. Did you see this? He says, not only did I come for the nations, but it includes you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. You, Roman Christians, who are reading this letter right now. You are part of the heart of Jesus for the nations. And I am an apostle whose ministry is to you like the rest of the nations. 
This largely Gentile congregation is reminded that they belong to Christ and that Jesus, the same Jesus, has sent Paul to them just as he is going to send them, send him to Spain. See, our, our mission here at Trinity Bible Church, as you've heard it said already today, is to make disciple-making disciples and plant disciple-making churches. As an apostle, Paul played a unique role in this, but Jesus has called all disciples to make disciples of the nations, Matthew 28. And we, like this church in Rome, are part of something much bigger than ourselves. So when we think about sharing the gospel or we think about planning a church, I think the first impetus is to think, like, I need to get my stuff together. I don't know if I'm perfect yet enough to, like, actually share the gospel or to plan a church. I don't know if I have enough money to go and do these things. And yet, here we find Paul telling us that the impetus, the natural impetus of the gospel is that it propels us to go and share Christ with others, with the nations. This is why we're passionate about missions and taking the gospel to the nations and seeing churches planted here in Arizona, in the United States, and in the nations, in Scotland, in the Philippines, and throughout the world. Why? For what Paul says his motivation was. The glory of the name of Christ. If you are a Christian and you have put your faith in Jesus, It is a new and glorious world that you've been called into in Christ. There will be persecution and humiliation and then the exaltation. But don't miss this. Ultimately, to be a Christian, what it means is that our lives are not motivated and driven by our own circumstances and gifts and possessions, but about the glory of Christ. And if we want to be driven by anything at Trinity Bible Church, I I hope, brothers and sisters, that it is a desire and a longing to see much made of the name of Jesus Christ with whom there is no equal. See, we we know how history ends, don't we? We know where it's going. The Gospel invites us into this. That's why we give 10% of every dollar that comes into this church and so much more often to missions. It's because we want to be part of what Christ is doing and what the Gospel calls us to. This is why we train pastors in Central America and raise up future pastors here and invest in the gospel going forth. It is not because we want to make much of our name, but because we want to make much of the glory of Christ and His name. Fourth, notice finally, the gospel of God made the Christians in Rome God's people. This is a glorious truth. By this time, the church would have been mixed, but mostly Gentile. And Paul's salutation is this into that context, to all those in Rome who were loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you see this? I, I wonder how much we should read into all those, the all in all those in Rome, as in both Jewish and Gentile Christians. But note that he describes them both as loved by God and called to be saints. Now, both of these phrases find their ground in the Old Testament with love, reflecting that Hebrew idea of chesed or loving kindness. It is a covenant faithfulness that God showed to Israel. And then you find this this phrase called to be saints. And this really reflects again on that Old Testament way that God called Israel to be his holy ones. He says, I am your holy God and I will make you a holy people. See, God has called a people who were no people 
to be his holy people in Israel. And now in Rome, he says, I have called you who are no people to be my people. I have put my name upon you. You are loved by God. He doesn't discriminate or break them up into groups. He says, you are loved by God and you are God's covenant people in Christ. Now there may be more to holy ones here. Uh, in fact, Stephen Woodward, he, he studied this, this term for holy ones, noting that it appears in the Old Testament for celestial beings. And sometimes to God's people in the eschatological future, like in the future in times, but not usually God's redeemed people in the present. It's not how the Old Testament usually uses it. But when you look at it in the New Testament, what's fascinating is he says it's used almost exclusively for God's holy people in the present. And from this he includes the in Christ people, Christians, have been thrust into the final kingdom, ushered into the room of the holiest, and graced with the unprecedented privilege of the companionship of the celestial. There is a real sense in which we are experiencing what Daniel and others only dreamed of even now. And there is more that is yet to come. So in one sense, these holy ones in Rome have already experienced the eschatological hopes of the Old Testament. And he closes his introduction with this last little phrase. A common Christian greeting, grace and peace. You'll notice that I, if you get a letter from me, it usually has grace and peace on it. Um, and basically, this is from Paul and Peter. Uh, they seem to have used this uh, they usually use this form of, of greetings that they, they changed into grace. It was a common uh, Greek uh, sort of salutation. And then Jews usually would end a letter with like mercy and shalom or peace. But they took shalom out and they put grace together. And really in this grace and peace, we have a real picture of the gospel of God, don't we, in that introduction? Grace. This glorious word that speaks of the saving work of God through Jesus Christ for those who are far from him. And peace to speak of our status in Christ with God. It's that Jewish idea of shalom or joyfulness and peace and security, not just from external enemies, but peace with God. See, these both come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul understands that the gospel of God has made both Jews and Gentiles fully the people of God. In this good news... This means that we too are truly and fully the people of God in Christ. Good news? That's good news. Let me close with a couple of quick applications. First, if you're a Christian, listen close as we go through Romans so that you can grow in your ability to understand and apply the gospel of God. You want to, to become so gospel conversant that you're able to understand how the gospel applies to give life-giving encouragement to other brothers and sisters. That means that you need to study deeply at the well of the gospel. And Romans is a great book to do that. And second, if you're a non-Christian, don't leave without trusting Christ with your life. See, we're going to hear again and again about why it is that we needed peace with God because we were enemies of God. And if you're here today and you haven't put your faith in Jesus, you're not part of the people of God, but you can become part of the people of God if you put your faith in Christ and what he has done for your behalf. So don't leave without talking to me or someone else about that gospel and without putting your faith in him today. Let's pray. Marvelous. 
Jesus, grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. We sing, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail? it away Look there is flowing a crimson tide Whiter than snow you may be today Singing grace grace God's grace Grace that will pardon and cleanse within Grace grace God's grace Grace that is great The following program is called Equipping the Saints, provided by ETS Ministry. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundsted, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Well, in the modern day church these days, evangelical or whatever it may be, it seems as though there's quite a trend of a phrase coined many years ago, actually in the 50s, easy believism, where it's just easy to believe. And certainly if we look at what faith is and we look at repentance, seeing it as a work of God, it is easy because we don't do anything, right? It's a work of God. 
But that phrase really points out maybe some misnomers and some teaching that is not accurate concerning what God requires for salvation, but what God requires, God supplies also, and that's what we will see today. But many people, maybe some of you, got supposedly saved by just saying, I'll try Jesus. That's a popular message in some of the churches around here. Just try Jesus to see if he will make your life better. And people who don't know Christ say, sure, that sounds like a good deal. I'll try Jesus. Other people will just raise their hands. Do you want to accept Jesus? Raise your hand. Sure, that sounds great. But is this what we see in Scripture true salvation looks like? In Luke chapter 24, the Lord Jesus Christ proclaimed that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed throughout the earth. The Lord Jesus himself proclaimed that within the context of faith in him, there is repentance. And folks, repentance is one of these words that many of us may not really be able to grasp very well. But I praise the Lord that he has not left us in the dark and we see in Scripture what genuine repentance looks like. And that's what I believe we're going to see today. And I believe the text we're going to look at today answers the question, what does genuine, true repentance look like? So would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah? And we're going through Jonah. And I hope you've been blessed by it. I've been tremendously blessed by my study. Convicted and blessed. And I hope that's the same for you. You've been convicted of straying heart or a heart that isn't right with God and been corrected and blessed as we've seen what the Lord God has revealed to us through this book of Jonah. I'm going to briefly review the context in the book of Jonah. We know that Jonah is a true story. He was a true prophet, 2 Kings 14. We know the Lord Jesus Christ, as we will see today, declared that the story in Jonah was true in Matthew chapter 12. We know two things, as I've shared each week, concerning the context of the book of Jonah, that there are two threads running here in Jonah. First of all, we have Israel, the northern kingdom, which had split off from the southern kingdom. Israel was on its way to discipline. They were spiraling towards God's discipline. And within a generation, the same Assyrians, different generation, would actually take them captive. And we also see that the Ninevites from Nahum chapter 3, and we'll look at it today, were on their way to judgment. Israel, God's people, on the way to severe discipline. Ninevites, not God's people, on the way to his judgment. Now, Jonah was written sometime during King Jeroboam II's reign, 793 B.C. to 758. Jonah's name, as I've shared before, means dove. We've seen in this book so far that Jonah is a disobedient prophet. The Lord God calls him in chapter 1 to go to Nineveh, the very people that he probably hates because of their wickedness. Called him to go to Nineveh, a bloody city full of lies, full of spiritual harlotry. And Jonah, what does he do? He doesn't obey, right? We saw that in chapter 1. Jonah goes the other way, as far as he can go, fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And later on in chapter 4, we see he really wasn't trying to flee from God per se. He was fleeing from the sphere in which God would use him to bring about the salvation of the Ninevites. And he was trying to forestall their salvation because of his wicked heart. Now we saw for Jonah that the true believer, Jonah, as with us, will be disciplined if we disobey God. And we saw that in chapter 1, that the Lord God brought a terrible storm 
on Jonah as he boarded a ship to go to Tarshish, 2,500 miles the opposite direction from Nineveh, about 500 miles northeast from Israel. And this storm became so bad, and hopefully you've been reading through, that the sailors became scared and the captain became scared. Everybody was scared. They're throwing cargo over. They're doing everything. And Jonah is down in the hold sleeping. And we see, ultimately, that Jonah didn't care. Jonah didn't care about what was going on. He didn't care about obeying the Lord. He didn't care about those who were perishing. These pagans were calling on their gods, trying to discern why the calamity had come upon him, and the lot falls on Jonah. He's questioned, and as I've shared, the cat's out of the bag. It's evident that it is because of Jonah's discipline that he is running from God. Now the sailors desperately try to save him. Jonah says, throw me over and it'll all be stopped, but they try to save him, these pagan sailors. But things get worse, and then the most wonderful thing happens in chapter 1. These pagan Phoenician sailors are saved. They call out upon the Lord. They are saved. They believe in the God of Jonah. They believe in the God of the Bible. They recognize His sovereignty. They call out to Him, and they worship Him. And we see then they throw Jonah overboard. He is swallowed by a great fish which God had prepared And the seas were calm. And then last week we saw in chapter 2 that Jonah recounts from the belly of the fish as he prays to God what was going on. He recounts the fact that he was drowning. He was going under. And he was about to die. And that's what chapter 2 is about. His prayer to God while he was dying. And in the belly of the fish, he recalls the fact that God saved him. That salvation is from the Lord. And inside the belly of this slimy fish, Jonah then ultimately declares the truth concerning God. And I believe he repents as he gives thanks to God for his salvation, as he declares that salvation is from the Lord. And it is at this point, albeit not a perfect repentance, as we see Jonah is still hardened. He makes a commitment to pay his vow, and I believe, as we'll see today, to do what God asked him to do. And he is vomited up from the whale at the end of chapter 2 and put on the beach. And then now that discipline is over for that time. And this is where we come into our passage today in Jonah chapter 3. Jonah has been vomited up on the beach. He is going to now, as we see in chapter 3, be given a second chance to obey the Lord. So turn in your Bibles with me to Jonah We're going to be looking today at the 10 verses in chapter 3. And I believe we're going to see in this passage the repentance of Jonah. And we're going to see the repentance of the Ninevites. And we're also going to see the repentance not from sin, but the relenting of God concerning the Ninevites' destruction. Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. We'll start there as we look at the repentance of Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, we need to recognize that in the beginning of this passage, the Lord gives 
Jonah clear instructions again on how to serve him. Again, we have the word of the Lord coming to Jonah, and notice this phrase, the second time. Very important, we see this. It's the second time, which reminds us of the first time, right? What happened when the word of the Lord came to Jonah the first time in chapter 1? Jonah arose and went the other way, right? Now it comes the second time, and here is the word of the Lord. Arise, verse 2, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So then after God ends his discipline of Jonah, at least at this point, we'll see more discipline coming in a different shade later on in chapter 4, he gives him another opportunity to be obedient. He comes to him the second time, And he says, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation. Same word we saw two weeks ago in chapter 1, this calling out, this proclamation. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it is the word karusa, which means preach or proclaim. Proclaim to it the proclamation, same word, which I am going to tell you. Preach to it the preaching which I am going to tell you, the Lord says. And notice, he says, which I am going to tell you. It's actually emphatic in the Hebrew language. Which I am going to tell you. It's my message, Jonah. Proclaim to them the message which I am going to tell you. Right? God is saying, Jonah, what I tell you is what you are to proclaim. And notice, just on a side note, God doesn't say, Jonah... You do need to understand the culture. You need to study their religions or they won't listen to you. He says, just proclaim my proclamation. Say what I have to say. Jonah is to proclaim the proclamation. It's pretty clear what Jonah is called to do. And we see in Scripture that nothing has changed for us. For pastors, we are compelled and commanded to preach or caruso, proclaim the word. For everyone in the body who speaks, 1 Peter chapter 4, if you speak, Peter tells them, whoever speaks, let him speak as were the utterances of God. And I share again, well, wouldn't it be better if we understood the Ninevites, saturated ourselves in their society, became their friends, maybe built a bridge to share the word of God to the Ninevites, Brothers and sisters, this is the mindset of missions and evangelism throughout the evangelical church. And I don't believe it's biblical, as we see from the Old Testament here and the New Testament. Pure and simple, Jonah is told to proclaim the preaching which he, the Lord, would tell him. And I believe nothing has changed since the time of Jonah. It is the Word of God, it is His message told to us from His Word, His powerful message that He uses to bring about salvation. That's the means in which He has ordained. Romans chapter 1, 16, we have the wonderful truth concerning what Paul says. And I'm going to go through a couple of verses here. I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. There are a lot of ashamed evangelists in the church by their actions, wanting to bring up a crowd and to pep it up so that they might accept the gospel, that it might not be something that offends them. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for in it is the power of God unto salvation. 
James 1.18, in the exercise of His will, speaking of God, He brought us forth through the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits of among His creatures. James 1.21, therefore putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. If you are a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, God used His Word to bring about new life, His powerful, Spirit-inspired and powerful Word. 1 Peter chapter 1.23, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord abides forever, and this is the word which was Caruso preached to you. Jonah is told to proclaim the word which God would tell him. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, we see the Apostle Paul's mindset in the proclamation of the gospel when he came to the Corinthians. He says, and when I came to you, brethren, he's making a case in these first three chapters to bring about a conviction on them concerning their boasting in their own wisdom rather than God's wisdom. And when I came to you, brethren, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling, And my message and my caruso, my preaching, were not of persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. One last passage, pretty familiar, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul tells Timothy, but evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's in the context, the word of God, they're twisting. You, however, he's speaking to Timothy, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them from, and that from childhood. Listen, children, you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom which leads to salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for what he goes through. It's the Word of God that gives you the wisdom to bring about salvation. Jonah is to proclaim the message which God says, I will give you. What would you think of an ambassador of a country who represented a country and then went forth and just proclaimed his own mind? We're ambassadors for Christ. And God has given us his Word And we are to proclaim it. And Jonah was told to do so. So notice the second time here, Jonah now actually obeys. Verse 1, Jonah chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Jonah has been through a horrendous situation. First of all, it is never fun to run away from God in that sense. It is never fun to be under his disciplinary hand. The way of the transgressor is hard. And that his running away from God ended him up in the middle of this sea, drowning, almost dying, and then in a slimy whale for three days and three nights. And now he's been vomited up on the shoreline, and God gives him an opportunity to obey where he had disobeyed before. 
I find this really amazing that God comes back with the same command again. Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Verse 3, so what did Jonah do? Did he go to the ship and split like last time? So Jonah arose and he went or literally walked according to the word of the Lord. He did it according to what God said. He obeyed the word of God according to the word of the Lord. Now we're going to see Jonah still got some attitude problems and we'll talk about that later. But Jonah is exhibiting some fruit from God's discipline. He is no longer running away trying to forestall God's hand. He realizes that does not work. And he is obeying the Lord. What a change. Brought to the point of death, vows within the stomach of the whale to do what he has said, and now he obeys the command. It's the fruit of a repentant heart. It's the first step is obedience. Now remember I shared in the book of Haggai how God works with disobedient people. Now certainly we want to obey with a good attitude. We do not want to be like Jonah in chapter 4. We don't want to go through the steps that he'll go through again as he is disciplined even more. But he does obey. And like we saw in the book of Haggai, as God addresses his disobedient people, as their priorities are all messed up, they're about their own business rather than the Lord's, they obey the Lord, and he empowers them. But then he goes on in chapter 2 to address some attitudes and sin, and that I think is what he's going to do with Jonah. Jonah is obeying, but God is still working on him. Now I need to address some bad theology in the churches these days, a theology by those who would propagate it, would say, if you don't feel like obeying, then don't obey. Because if you don't feel like it, you're not obeying at all. Folks, that's totally wrong. We walk by faith and not by sight. Even though we may not feel like obeying, we need to step out in faith and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. It is usually through those actions that he starts to change our hearts as we make the decision to obey the Lord God, confessing our sin, Now, if you wait till your heart is perfectly ready to obey, you may be waiting for a long time. And certainly, as I've shared, we want to obey with a willing heart. That is the way we should be, and that's what we should strive for. A clean heart, a willing heart. But sometimes we need to step out in obedience and just do what he says. Now, that's all the time, but sometimes our hearts may not be there yet. We need to do it apart from feelings. And Jonah responds. He goes 500 miles. I don't know how long it takes to walk 500 miles, but I think it's a long time. And I think Jonah had a long time to think about his obedience. So often we think of our obedience as a split-second action. Okay, I obeyed, Lord. Well, Jonah's got to walk 500 miles to obey the Lord here. And then when he gets there, he needs to give the proclamation which the Lord has told him. And Jonah does it. Now let me remind you, as we saw in chapter 1 and we'll see in chapter 4, Jonah most likely hates these people. They're a brutal people. They tortured, and I can't share how bad it is, the people they took over. They were a bloody people. They were an evil people, and Jonah probably hated them for that. And Jonah didn't want to have them saved, as we'll see. But here Jonah does obey, and he goes, no matter how he feels. God's discipline was working in Jonah, brought to almost death, but willing to obey now. 
So notice what happens when he arrives in Nineveh. End of verse 3. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. We know from chapter 4 that Nineveh had 120,000 of those who didn't know the right hand from the left hand. That means real small children, which means it probably had over 500,000 people. It was a big city. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, the superpower of the day. And Jonah arrives, and what does he do? In the Hebrew, it's bang, 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 just one thing after another, no delay. Then, verse 4, Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Remember back in verse 1, the Lord said he would give him the proclamation which he should share. This is part of that proclamation here. Yet forty days... And Nineveh will be overthrown, turned over, destroyed. Now some of you might be wanting to go through the significance of 40 days. And it's tempting to go through that and see what type of other things in the Bible were 40 days. The flood, we have Moses on the mountain, the spies in the land, Elijah on Mount Horeb, Ezekiel on his side one of those times. Jesus fasted in the wilderness 40 days before his temptation. He also appeared after his resurrection 40 days. Is there a significance here in our passage? You know, the text doesn't say. What we do know is God is sovereign, and he's set a date, 40 days, and Nineveh is overthrown. And he has set a date. It is appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. There is a date in which you will be overthrown eternally if you do not repent of your sins. We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.